630 Chad Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Weekdays at 6 on 630 Chad. Appreciate you tuning in tonight, Remembrance Day. We have a best of inside sports here on 630 Chad. A lot to come in the next hour and, of course, on Remembrance Day. Of course, we want to acknowledge everybody who serves Canada in the military and those who have made the ultimate sacrifice for our country and for our freedom. We cannot thank you enough. Harna Ryan Singh, great broadcaster for Hockey Night in Canada, Punjabi. You've also seen him on Sportsnet. He's got a book out. It's called One Game at a Time. Yeah, you know, I was very fortunate to have the publishing company, McClellan and & Stewart, and they are a, a division of Penguin Random House, one of the bigger publishers in North America, and they came and approached me for uh, the idea of writing a book to and to tell my story and my journey. and. You know, it's it's a it's a hockey book, but it's not just for hockey fans. I would say it's kind of everything the world's needing right now with a, a positive message of diversity through the lens of a hockey broadcaster. And you know, my story um, it's it's crazy because when you go through uh, everything you experience in your life, you don't really necessarily realize that it's going to at some point resonate with others, or you know, other people will be able to find parallels. But that's really what has happened. And I would say my childhood dream to be a hockey broadcaster but constantly be told that it wouldn't be possible because of how I looked and because of the lack of diversity on TV and then persevering through you know through that cautionary tale to eventually paying for my flights and and everything in between and making it kind of happen that that story and and the story of I would say the parallels with that that other Canadians um, feel uh, that they've gone through especially if you're a person of color is that Hockey really is that uh, unifying force in Canada that it is what helps you fit in. And, and Reid, and we've probably talked about this before, but my my childhood, you know, had it not been for hockey, uh, it probably would have been completely and drastically different for me. It, hockey was the icebreaker. It helped me create friendship amongst my classmates. And, you know, me being in a small town in Brooks, Alberta, where I grew up, and being very different from all of my classmates, I was the subject of curiosity, and hockey is what helped me fit in. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Harder Ryan, because we obviously went through a lot of talk about um, about racism and diversity and inclusion, and certainly inclusion is a relevant story this week with how Joey Moss, you know, despite being different, was given an opportunity with the Oilers and with the double E, and he took it and made an incredible life out of it. So, so I'm glad that you're talking about it in those words, because I'll be honest with you, sometimes I will have... Um, you know, a listener or, or a caller say like, oh, well, I, well, I don't want to hear this. this. This shouldn't be on a sports show. I, I don't care about, uh, uh, you know, if, if somebody was uh, was discriminated against or wasn't allowed to do something. Social issues don't belong in sports. But I think you've made a good summary of why they, sh- they do belong in sports and how it helped you become a, a part of a bigger community. Yeah, definitely, and and you see that with the story of of Joey Moss, and just even the the tremendous amount of uh, condolences and just the hockey community overall. Basically, anybody who had contact with him, and uh, you know, he he left a lasting impression and such a positive one. And there's there's so many ways to go about answering that question, uh, Reed. I, I've get, I've gotten that too on my social media too. That. You know, there's certain people out there who don't want uh, to be marrying politics with hockey. This is my opinion. It's not politics at all. This is 
talking about a basic human right of respect for one another. And I think that, you know, um, for us to have progress as society, we need to be able to have compassion for one another. And, and And part of that is listening to each other's experiences. I mean, I've I've experienced so many different um, traumatic moments, even within the hockey world, the sports world in Canada, or just walking on the street and, you know, where people, um, I, you know, the comments go back to where you came from, or even well-intentioned comments of welcome to Canada, where someone assumes because I have a turban and a beard that I'm new here, whereas I'm such a patriotic Canadian. I love hockey. I love this country. And so, the, you know, those types of words, they, they hurt and they probably hurt me more than the average person because of the fact that I'm so passionate about hockey and, uh, and about Canada and so having to you know I think that if I'm if I'm able to you know through the book or through you know this conversation with you uh, able to provide that perspective to someone um, you know I, I think that's really important for us to be able to realize what we as Canadians have gone through and you know what we need to do to to make sure that uh, we continue to progress with respect respect for people who are different um, in the future. Yeah, well well said for sure. Harner Ryan Singh joining us tonight on Inside Sports again. The new book, One Game at a Time. And whenever there's books out in this time of the year, I always remind people Christmas is coming too. If they're not interested themselves, maybe some of they don't, right? Um, so is there something, as a bit of a teaser here, Harner Ryan, I, I know you want people to grab the book. Is there a, uh, a funny, emotional uh, story you want to give us a tidbit of? Or, uh, or a little bit of teaser out of the book to entice people? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, um, one of the chapters is called Wayne's World, and it's about my um, obsession with Wayne Gretzky in the years in, in Alberta when I grew up when uh, the Oilers were in their dynasty and just the extent that my family and I went to in terms of um, the obsession with Gretzky was so strong. Like, I'll give you an example where my my parents being of the Sikh faith and we, you know, we're turban wearing and, a fa- you know, a family that practices, tries to practice their faith and still be Canadian. And my parents celebrated my siblings and I are birthday days with they made this special sweet pudding and would do, would do a prayer on our birthdays and i'm a, i'm a kid in brooks alberta watching the oilers dynasty and i'm just you know infatuated with gretzky and and following the oilers so closely and january 26th comes along and i'm in elementary school and i go up to my mom in the kitchen and i say hey mom it's gretzky's birthday can we can we make the prashad, the sweet pudding that you guys make for our birthdays and do the prayer? And, you know, lo and behold, he didn't know till I, I was able to share with him many, many years later, but we were, we were there praying for Gretzky on his birthday and they were, my parents were such good sports about it. And just, just the extent that we went to, to, you know, fuel the passion for hockey and everything. There's some really fun stories about that. And, and then eventually, you know, getting into the broadcast world, um, you know, some some fun stories about Bob Cole, who also called so many great Oiler moments and Stanley Cup finals. And I, I remember the game when, when Bob Cole came and the Oilers had him come out for the last game ever at, at Rexall Place, or uh, formerly known as Northlands Coliseum in the, in the heyday. So there's actually quite a bit of an Edmonton um, and Alberta connection, um, even stories about current players like McDavid and things as well. And uh, so a lot, a lot uh, kind of fit in there, but also, also the story of, uh, you know, my community, how Hockey Night Punjabi began 
my family coming to Canada. So it's a it's a mix of everything. But I think uh, you know, for the I'm very fortunate to say that the feedback has really been great. So I'm really lucky that way. Yeah, that that is awesome. I, I always ask this too when someone writes a book. Um, because I think that's one of the coolest things that, that somebody could ever do. I'm curious about your process for writing it because you, you got to do it. I mean, my, my buddy Jay wrote a couple of books and mm-hmm. he would take his laptop to a coffee shop uh, uh, every morning and sit there for an hour and make sure he got in a, a word count. Uh, you know, Ken Reed obviously has written several books and, and he kind of has come up with a system. What did you do to stay disciplined and make sure you were on schedule? Yeah, well, I'm a talker, as you can tell, and, uh, you know, uh, my, my wife and my family often tell me I'm providing too many details and the stories are a little too lengthy, so it was easy for me to um, get things down by talking them out, and another Alberta connection is uh, Michael Hingston, who lives in Edmonton, and he's written a few books. Um, he's also got some Edmontonia uh, cards about Edmonton out there as well, and um, he, he uh, helped me as a co-writer to try to figure out okay how are we going to put this in what order and uh, because of his experience writing books so it was great to have a co-writer along but the process for me was kind of just talking about anything and everything that I could about my journey and, and my life and then the stories of, of uh, along the career so far that I remember and then figuring out kind of with him which ones we we felt we wanted to focus on more or less and, and go from there. But uh, it's quite the process. I mean, this is something that we began two to three years ago and uh you know here we are it just came out this fall so books are it's quite the uh it's quite the process to and it takes a while but it's you know it's definitely well worth it and i mean we we also had to go back to kind of um a lot changed in since 2018 till now uh just given you touched on it in the world of sports uh with the with racism we you know we had incidents with don cherry there's there's been so much that's gone on in the world so we we actually did go back at it a few times uh with after completing a manuscript just kind of touch on some of the issues as well it is one game at a time you can find it wherever you get your books of course you can order it wherever you order your books if you do that and the cover is you right they'll get everybody gets to see you that's right and uh, i also play some south asian instruments and the back covers me on on the ice in a hockey ring sitting in front of a hockey net too so that it was special to be able to kind of marry uh those two things together but yeah it's really about hockey's power to unite and uh, you know some fun stories of a hockey themed wedding with a wedding cake that was a life-size stanley cup and and some nice pictures in there as well so i you know i think i think hockey fans of all ages will really enjoy it Hunter Ryan Singh, energetic man, incredible story. Love having him on the show. Sid Smith, we had him uh, on a couple of weeks ago, one day before his retirement. He's next, best of Inside Sports. So Inside Sports started up back in 1996. The first host of the show was Sid Smith, who recently retired after an illustrious career and, uh, he and Dave Campbell joined me on October 29th talking about getting inside sports going. John Short had set sort of this, um, set the stage in Edmonton. There was this, it was just a thing that Edmonton had was evening sports talk show. And John had done it for years at a different station and then he had stopped doing it. So uh, Dave kept hearing from listeners, I think, that there was this void. And so he thought, well, 
maybe we should fill that void and maybe we should do it. And uh, so he kind of started that conversation with me. And of course, I was like, well, sure. I mean, I'm really only working three or four nights a week with uh, with the Oilers game, so I'd be happy to do it. Now, my challenge was, and that's why it was so good to have you there, was because you know, I would say I know hockey, but I probably knew just enough hockey, just enough football to get by. But John had set this uh, set the table where the image in Edmonton of sports talk radio, and John was amazing at it, was you could just call and ask him anything, right? And so uh, yeah. I knew getting into this that it would take me a while if I was going to host this to train people not to do that. Uh, because, I mean, you remember, like, there would be, you know, we'd be talking about the Oilers, and then the next call would be wanting to know who I thought was going to win the NASCAR race at that week. And then we'd talk a little more Oilers, and it would be, hey, who won that ATV you know, doubles match earlier today? And so that's where I was relying on you, because you, you, you did follow more sports than I did, frankly. And, uh, and so I could uh, say, Dave, like, you know, who actually played in that tennis match? I have no idea. And it was kind of the internet had started, but it wasn't really taking hold yet. So we were scrambling some night. Yeah, you know, I was going to talk to you about that too because in that era, we did not have social media. The internet was around, but it wasn't really like a, a you know, kind of like a thing you go to all the time. Um, and, and the way we put together shows, and I know I wasn't the producer back then, uh, Larry Varis was, but I, I was, I had a hand in some show planning and some some execution on the on the on you know the, the guest list, but. It was such a different era back then and how you put it together a show. Some things have been consistent, but it was a lot different back then. It was, and I would say uh, the uh, the luxury of doing uh, that show at a time when there was no social media is, you know, you know instinctively that people hated you, but you didn't know who. <laughs> and, they, you know, they, they really didn't have a form to express that hatred. So you kind of, kind of could go through life kind of oblivious because when you meet people, they're nice, right? Uh, but so, so that was that was kind of a luxury. Yeah, it just took a little bit more time to plan. It took a little bit more time to do research. Uh, uh, I actually, you know, I kind of the only thing I envy now is I actually like I don't know much about analytics and that sort of thing, but I'm fascinated by it. And it, to me, it's just it's more information. And I kind of wish, you know, when I was doing sports and covering the Oilers to have access to that information to just kind of, you know, uh, to dig into things a little bit more and weigh that against, you know, what, what, what coaches or scouts are saying. I, I find all of that fascinating. So I do think there, as time marches on, uh, and more and more people embrace, you know, the information that is out there. I, t I think that's been a real, a real improvement. I do want to, Dave, and I, I, want, I just want to tell a story because I've been thinking about a lot of things. And I don't know if you remember the day when uh, when Allison Wake broke a trade for us, Doug's wife. Yes. Uh, so yes. for those who don't, and uh, this was a fascinating story for me, and I just, you know, it's just curious. You know, like sometimes you wonder how information gets to, uh, how things happen. So I, I'm trying not to bore people with this, but, but we're on the air doing a show. Kelly Buckberger had gone to, uh, to the expansion uh, Atlanta Thrashers, and then now it's the trade deadline in that first year that he was there, and lots of speculation that he's going to get traded, except nobody really knows where. And it wasn't trade deadline wasn't like now where there's you know multiple uh, you know cable channels doing wall-to-wall -wall coverage. It was a thing, but it wasn't a thing. And 
And so I'm on the air kind of speculating about where Kelly Buffalo might end up. And then we go to a break, and uh, and Dave comes on the talk back. We were actually, I was downstairs. It was a weird configuration. Talk to me was downstairs. Dave's upstairs uh, in the control room. And he says, Alan Wait, Allison Waite just called and says, Bucky's been traded to L.A. And I was like, Allison Waite? I'm like, are you sure it was Allison? He's like, wow, she said. Uh, so I'm like, <laughs> okay, I can't go to her with that, but I'm assuming it's probably her because who would impersonate her? So I'm like, I know what we'll do. We've got Morley on the road with the Oilers. I call Morley and say, hey, Allison Waite just called and said that Bucky's been traded to to L.A. And I said, have you heard anything? And Marley said, well, no. Uh, he said, but Doug's right here. I'll ask him. And I was, I was like, because I wanted to say, do not tell him that Allison called because even with married couples, I want to protect my sources. <laughs> Marley comes back like five minutes late, not even, because we're still in that same break. He says, no, Doug says, no, nothing about it, so it can't be true because they were really tight. And I'm like, oh, okay. So we go back on the air. A few minutes later, take another break. Morley calls back. Uh, yeah, Doug just told me it's, it's true. He's been traded. That's where he's gone. And I said to Morley, I said, did you tell him that Allison called? And he said, yeah. I'm like, oh, okay. Anyway, so we go in the air. We report the trade. And it was good. We broke the story. Everything's good. So uh, then it's a, a couple of days later when the Oilers come back from the road. And I know I got to talk to Doug. And... I walk up to him and I just said, please tell me you didn't give Alice, I, I didn't say heck, but I said, please tell me you didn't give Alice an heck. And he's like, of course I did. I said, why would you do that? Why would you give that? He said, I literally got off the phone with her, told her that Kelly got traded. And then as I'm hanging up the phone, Morley's walking over saying that she called to say that, uh, you know, like literally within a minute. And, uh, and I said, uh, said, said, what did you say to her? Like, please, you know, and he goes, he said, well, I, I called her right back. And I said, did you, did you tell Seth that Kelly got traded? And she's like, yeah. And he said, like, well, why would you do that? And this is like just the most genuine, nice answer that you would expect from a genuine, nice person. She said, well, I was listening to him and it sounded like he really wanted to know where Kelly was going to get traded to. So I called to tell him. <laughs> <laughs> And so that's how, well. that's how Allison helped us out with one of the big trades. Well, that's a great story, man. That's never happened to me. Somebody calling in like that to break a trade. That's pretty cool. Inside Sports. One of the all-time great blue liners in the NHL, Serge Savard, has a book called Forever Canadian. It's recently been translated into English. He joined us on Inside Sports. But before we got to talk in hockey uh, about his playing career, he wanted to talk about Joey Moss. Well, I, I remember the, the two years that I played in Winnipeg, and I remember in the in the visitors' dressing room for practice, and and John John Ferguson used to bug him a lot. He tried to convince him to wear a Winnipeg Jets uh, sweater. He wouldn't do it. And we we had a lot of fun with him. It was it was a great person, great kid. Yeah, great person. Absolutely. You know, such such a positive influence in our community and like you said, across the league. And, you know, somebody else we lost earlier this year, too, and, and you got to be a teammate in, in Winnipeg, and that's Dale Howarchuk. Um, man, it was it was pretty touching hearing people remember his career and his life when he passed away, Serge. Uh, give us your experience of playing with Dale, having him as a teammate. Well, I I, uh, I joined the Winnipeg Jets in December 1981. That was a couple of months after the season start had started, 
And Dale was uh, w was the first pick overall that year. And when I arrived in Winnipeg, he was the captain uh, at 18 year old and a well respected guy. And he he he, he loved his teammates. And and when I bought a house, he bought a house right uh, you know two three houses from mine. Uh, he, he, he was living with Scott Arneal and and, uh, and Mullen, and uh, and uh, they were always at the house. And uh, you know, I became close to those kids and close to, especially to Dale Howardchuck. Uh, I was on the committee for the uh, the selection committee for for the Hall of Fame, and uh, I worked real hard to get him in the Hall of Fame. And. Uh, and uh, we stayed, I went to his golf tournament and we stayed very close friend. And, and uh, it, it's in my book because I wrote something after he died. The, the, the book was not printed. And I, the only thing I changed from the French version, I just, I, I just added a few paragraphs about our check uh, because I had a phone call two days before he died. And uh, and he called me. I had them, and I, I saw his name on my phone. And uh, I answered the phone. He says, "Hi, Serge." He says, uh, "How are you?" And uh, I said, yeah, "Very good, very good." He says, I, "I just called to say goodbye." And he and and he says, uh, "I want you to say goodbye to your wife and your children." And uh, begin you all my wife and my children from the, my time in Winnipeg. And then he started to cry. <laughs> I, I I don't know if you ever had a, a call like that, but that's the toughest call I had in my life, and uh, and I start to cry too, and uh, that's the last time I talked to Dale Howitcher. Well, sir, th thanks for sharing that story. Th that's amazing. And what an incredible friendship you guys must have had. And he was such a great player, Serge, that he played in an era where, um, you know, there would have been a lot of the guys you played with the with the Canadians still playing, Lafleur and Robinson and Gretzky and Lemieux and, and Bork in the league. What, was, was he a little overlooked or maybe even underrated sometimes while he was playing? Well... Uh, you know, I, I didn't know him very well when I saw him play junior in Cornwall one or twice. But but I, I uh, when I move in Winnipeg and I start to, to look at this guy, I, I couldn't believe how good he was. And he was not very, he was not a speedy, you know, that that's the one thing you lack a little bit. But, but you know, there's no doubt Gretzky, but Gretzky and Macy were the top two players in the league at that time. But as soon as I saw that kid after a few weeks, I said, oh, my God, this guy, what are you? it's not going to be very long. This guy is going to be number three in the league. He, he uh, I, I don't think anybody could handle the puck like he did. He made up for the speed that he lacked a little bit, but uh, nobody can make a pass like him and 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 deck a player, deal, uh, go around a player and shift a player. He was he had great hands, great hands. Yeah, Serge Savard joining us tonight on Inside Sports. The book is Forever Canadian. Great picture of Serge holding the Stanley Cup. I, man, so many things I could hit on. I'm going to try to focus on a couple parts of your career. I, if if you can go back to first joining the Montreal Canadiens, a storied franchise, uh, a favorite to win all the Stanley Cup almost every year, and, and you did get to play for it and win, win many while you were there, but what was it like cracking the roster and then being a young member of, of the Montreal Canadiens with all those expectations? 
Yeah. Well, in those days, it was only six teams in the league and two in Canada, uh, uh, Toronto and Montreal. And, and as a young Quebecer, my, my dream was to play for the Montreal Canadiens. And we were maybe 10, 15 on the ice as a kids on the pound and on the ice. And we all had the same sweater, the old Canadian sweater. And uh, and you have to, to, to go back and, 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 and know that there was no draft, you know, we, we, we went to the training. I went to the training camp of the junior Canadian at 15 and we signed a, the C formula, they call at that time. And, and you, they, they own your rights. Like, like Jacques Lemaire, Carol Van myself, Rogie Vachon at that time. At that time, nobody, nobody got draft. The draft came after. And, uh, and, and, and I, like I said, the dream, my dream was to play for Montreal. And I remember my first training camp, I was still playing for the junior Canadians. My first training camp with the big team, I walked in the, the when I walked in the dressing room, the first guy I ran into was Jean Billable. <laughs> and he, he shook hand with me and said, good luck kid. I mean, wow. You know, when, when you're 17 year old and, you ran into one of the greatest players of all time, and he shook hand with you, and he takes the time to wish you good luck. Uh, you know, you say, oh, my God, my, my dream. I, I got my dream. <laughs> it, it was something unbelievable. Uh, well, but, you know, I was, I was, I was at the right place, uh, and I graduated with the Canadians, and uh, my first two years, we won the cup, and I couldn't ask for more. <laughs> Well, luckily you, you got more though. I mean, the, 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 I mean the nineteen seventies for the Canadians, uh, and I mean talk about Hall yeah. of Famers. You got you, Bowman, yeah. Fleur. It's just incredible, Dryden. Yeah, yeah. Well, I got more. You're right. And uh, I, you know, when 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 your second line is the Mahavlich, and your first line is uh, Steve Schott with sixty goals, and uh, Jacques Lemaire with forty, and uh, Lafleur on the right side with between fifty and sixty. I mean, on defense, we had the best goalie, Ken Dryden. On defense, we were all big, 6-2, 6-3. And uh, in today's hockey, you couldn't put a team together like this because, because of the salary cap. Nobody could buy a team like that. It's, it's just like... like uh, like the Oilers in in the seventies, and you, you you can't have the top four players of the league on the same team anymore. Okay, uh, like I said, so many things I could ask you. I'll try to focus on a few here. Um, let's do an infamous moment. Well, maybe for Boston, it's an infamous moment. For the Canadians, it's a famous moment. Uh, too many men, nineteen seventy nine. Were you were you aware they had too many men? What's your recollection of that call? Well, uh, not really. I, w I was. Uh, I I found that out when people start to yell uh, in the stands, uh, and then you know at at that time of the game, and nobody wants to call a penalty, and and the referee didn't want to call a penalty, but they were six on the ice for about thirty seconds, twenty seconds. So they they had no choice but to call that penalty, and and uh, and. Uh, uh, it, it happened so many times against Boston that a few things happened and we turned around and won. And uh, the worst case was in 1971. They had, they had a team, a much better team than we had. And, and one game in Boston, second game in Boston, they're leading 5-1. 
Five one in the first period, and Henry uh, Richard score at the end of the period made it five two, and we won seven five. So that that that's quite a turnaround, and we end up winning the Stanley Cup again that year in the finals against Chicago. But that too many men on the ice, James, uh, it's, it's unbelievable, you know. And Lafleur, Lafleur score. Uh, on, on that power play to tie up the game and and we won in overtime and wow <laughs> that, that was uh, that quite quite a scenario it's uh i uh, we had so many scenarios like that where like team canada 70 72 i mean we came from behind and and we couldn't tie we had to win and we we end up winning the last three games in moscow on the big surface that was quite an achievement too. Well, that was, that's another incredible. Uh, and I, I didn't they win? Didn't Canada win, or they went four zero and one in all the games you played? Because did did you not have some sort of a, a fracture or something like that in the middle of that Summit series? Well, in uh, in Montreal, the first game with that we lost, I think seven three. I, I was not dressed. Uh, because Harrison and I told the whole team we were something like 40 players. He said, everybody will play. See, too many, everybody uh, were, were telling us, we're, on the, uh, were thinking that the, we, were not, we were not going to lose a game. So, so what happened, he started to dress, you know, certain player and he would dress other players the next night. But we lost, we, we got a very, very hard warning the first game and we lost 7-3. Uh, uh, so two days later, we won. I was dressed in, in Toronto, we won 4-2. And two days later, we tied in Winnipeg. But the next morning at the workout, uh, I, I had a, I was in front of the net and I received a slap shot from Red Berenson right on the ankle and uh, didn't break my ankle, but I had a hairline fracture. So, so I, I missed uh, the next two games and I played in the last three. So it happened that uh, I was four and one. I, I did not lose a game. Serge Savard, the book is forever Canadian. Inside Sports, best of edition. Edmonton Steve Sir, who works in the front office for the Edmonton Stingers of the Canadian Elite Basketball League, remains the career leader in the NCAA for three-point shooting percentage. He played with Northern Arizona. Had him on the show, and I asked him, how would players try to throw you off? It's a good question because if you watch a lot of basketball right now uh, with the NBA, there's a lot more calls given to shooters uh, when defenders are taking liberty with them. So you're seeing a lot more guys go to the free throw line because guys are bumping them and hitting their hand after they release it and doing little things to try and get into shooters' areas and, and bother their rhythm. I, I hate saying this because it ages me a little bit, but back when I played, it just... Um, people didn't do that. Um, you were allowed to be really aggressive with guys that refs knew in the game were going to be running off screens, uh, were going to be doing a lot of running around the court because when that was happening, the, the key strategy always has been since I was 14 or 15 years old and the other team knew I could really shoot was the guy across from me was just going to say, I'm going to hold you and grab you and push you and shove you and hit you. So 
it's going to wear you out. It's going to throw you off your rhythm. And then when you do get a shot, I'm going to step underneath you. I'm going to poke you in the stomach. I'm going to slap your hand when you let the ball go. Little things like that just to bother you. When I was playing in Mexico, a guy would pinch me um, really hard. And I'd be trying to run around. And when I would come to a stop, he would grab my side and just pinch as hard as he could. And uh, I, that's probably one of my least favorite um, because it was pretty painful. Um, but in college, a lot of guys just came at it from a perspective of first play of the game, they look, look you right in the eye and say, you're not going to get a look tonight. And I played enough basketball to know, like, yeah, okay, pal, we'll, we'll see about that. And, um, and I had great teammates that set great screens for me and set me up. And I got to tell you, like, one of the best feelings in the world is when a guy comes into a game and says that of like, I know the scouting report in and out, you're not going to get a look. And you hit two or three and he gets subbed out and the coach is all over him on the sideline and you can give him a little wink when he sits down. Um, that's one of the best feelings in the world because you know like, hey man, I helped you earn that spot on the bench, so enjoy. <laughs> Uh, that's not exactly where I expected that answer to go. Some of it didn't surprise me. The pinching really surprised me. And I assume as a, as an athlete, as, as a pro athlete, it's hard to tell the ref, Hey, watch for this guy pinching my side. (laughs) It, It really can be. I mean, especially when you're in a foreign country and you're having to explain to the ref that, uh, that a local player is bothering an import player. It just didn't really stick with a lot of local referees. Um, in college, it's a little bit different because at some point in time, uh, and also in professional too, guys are in reputation. So if someone's famous for doing something, refs are smart. They're, they're going to be able to see it um, if the guy has a reputation of doing it. Um, if you're the type of player that uh, is going to go to the ref and say, hey, this is what's happening, so just keep an eye out for it. it. I found that when I was flustered and frustrated by these things and I went to the ref panicked or overly aggressive, they would be dismissive. But if you walked over calmly and you would just be say, hey, this guy's grabbing me every time I move, would you just get, keep an eye out for it? I, you know, a lot of the times the refs would, and then you, you have to do a good job as a player of not trying to retaliate because, I mean, like you know, it, it's not usually the first action. It's probably the retaliation that the refs are going to catch. So you kind of have to learn how to pick your spots. Now, was there or is there, okay, you mentioned a guy might say to you, hey, I'm going to shut you down or, or I got you figured out, but would there be a lot of in-game trash talk that you experienced or, or things happening too fast to really take the time to do that? Oh, there's there's tons of it um, <laughs> for for defenders when you came into like using college as the example um, my reputation as a shooter would be something that when you prepare to play northern Arizona um, that's probably at the top of the scouting report of if you let Steve get going he'll hit six or seven or eight threes tonight and we can't have that so there was usually a guy across from me who his his whole job wasn't to score wasn't to do a whole heck of a lot else. It was to be right in my chest and follow me and bump me and bother me. And if a guy was getting that done, you could see their confidence grow. And that often would result in guys saying stuff because, you know, really you watch video on players and you you hear stories about guys, but I mean, like so often you want to see it with your own two eyes. So there were a couple games in college where it wasn't my night as much as I wanted it to be. 
and uh, the guy across from me would say, like, you know, you're not you're not as tough as I thought you were going to be, and uh, you're you're not as good a shooter as any of these guys are saying. And that would that would cut pretty deep. The good thing in college is you got two cracks at everybody. So if someone ran their mouth off the first time you play them, you take a note, put it in your pocket, and you come back at them hard the second time. But there's lots of stuff that gets said. I'd be really creative. Some guys are just trying to be mean. But it's just, uh, it's all part of the sport. And, um, you you know, when guys are talking trash, uh, that can sometimes make it pretty fun, too. Because if you hit one, there's, uh, there's a lot of room for you to come back over the top and say something, too. Did you ever have a fight or any sort of extreme physical altercation in basketball? I mean, I know if you throw a punch, you're out of the game. But were you ever in a, in a melee in any of your leagues? You know, I'm going to give you the real short version of this uh, because it's uh, it was a doozy. But um, when I was in Switzerland my second year, uh, there was a guy on another team that I didn't really get along with. Every time we played, it's exactly what I described. He was holding, grabbing, flopping when I would try and push away, and he played for the really good team. So I wasn't I wasn't really getting a lot of uh, a lot of looks from the ref, and he was getting some some good ones. He was he was a national team player. And uh, we would say some things to each other during the game. And, and finally, it came to a head in a playoff game. Um, we were walking back to our bench after the game was over. And he was not not a real classy guy. We brought a busload of kids to watch our game that day. And the gym was full. And he, right when I walked past him, he flipped the kids off. He gave them the bird. Oh, and, um geez. I grabbed the back of his jersey and I said, like, and I probably said some bad words in here too. But I was like, man, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing to the kids? And he hauled off and punched me. Um, he, like, took a step back and made a face at me and he punched me with his left hand. Now, I got to be honest, Reed. It was like a real limp wrist punch. Like, it just kind of, like, glazed my cheek. And when this happened, like, I just went nuts. So I started chasing him around the gym. Um, there's probably like 4,000 people in the arena and I'm chasing this guy trying to get my hands on him to kill him. And I finally get him. And the other American for the other team grabs me by the neck, picks me up and just like slams me on the ground. This guy was huge. He was like a six, nine, six, ten guy. And then by that time, everyone was just the, both benches were empty and the whole gym was a total nutshell. So that was the closest I ever came to getting in a fight. Um, it was a real mess, but uh, I guess you can laugh about it now. Not, not a lot of people were laughing at it then, but uh, it, was, it was a decent show for everyone who paid to watch a game. Well, that's an incredible story. Steve had never told that before. Swiss basketball, it can get a little rowdy. Incredible. Hey, thanks a lot for tuning in tonight. Best of Inside Sports tonight. We had George LaRock. We had Ryan Rosnowski on the show. Paul Molitor, Gort Cutler, Harner Ryan Singh, Sid Smith, Serge Savard and Steve Sir. The producer of the show is Dave Campbell. We're back with a live edition tomorrow night. I'm Reed. Thanks for listening. 630 Chad Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Weekdays at 6 on 630 Chad. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.